Welcome to the New Testament Review, where every episode we discuss an influential work of New Testament scholarship. I'm joined today by Jacob Cerrone, and we are discussing Adolf van Harneck's The Letter of the Roman Church to the Corinthian Church from the Era of Domitian, subtitle First Clement. Hi, Jacob. Hey, Ian. Jacob, who are you? Well, I'm a doctoral student in New Testament at the Friedrich Alexander University in Erlangen-Nuremberg, and my focus is on First Clement. Wonderful. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So this is our second episode on a work by Adolf von Harnack, and surely it won't be our last. Harnack was a massively influential scholar of New Testament and early Christianity. Our previous episode, if you're interested, was on Marcion of Sinope, Harnack's famous study of Marcion's theology. Who was Adolf von Harnack? Adolf von Harnack was a late 19th century, early 20th century church historian. He published widely on church history, New Testament, and philology, and he was a prolific scholar whose works still influence the various fields in which he worked and published. He's often referred to as the pinnacle of German liberal theology. So the work we're discussing today is Harnack's very last work. It's a book or a essay, long essay on First Clement. This has never been translated into English before. Jacob Cerrone uh, edited and translated this work and a series of other essays on First Clement in a new series, The Classical Studies on the Apostolic Fathers. Let's zoom out a little bit. What is this First Clement thing? I'm here holding my New Testament, and I, as I check the table of contents, Jacob, I don't see First Clement in here. What business do we have discussing this on this podcast? First Clement is an incredibly important text. To summarize First Clement as broadly as possible, it's a letter from the Roman Church to the Corinthian Church, which attempts to resolve a dispute over church leadership that had arisen within the Corinthian Church. Clement exhorts the Corinthian believers to reinstate the bishops or the elders who had served the church faithfully and who had been deposed without cause. The letter is one of the most important witnesses that we have to early Christianity. It was written, some say, and this is unlikely, around 70 CE uh, to as late as 120 CE, and most agree that it was written sometime around 90. Uh, and that puts it as one of the earliest works that we have as a witness to early Christianity, and some would say even earlier than some texts in the New Testament. Yeah, I would say almost certainly earlier than some texts in the New Testament. So we're dealing with an early Christian writing that predates some of the New Testament. And while I might jest about this not being in my table of contents of the New Testament, if I were a Christian who was using Codex Alexandrinus, which is a 5th century complete Greek Bible, that is one of our most important early Greek texts of the New Testament um, and the Greek Old Testament. If I flipped to towards the end of the New Testament, what I would find there is a copy of First and Second Clement printed right along with the rest of the Greek Bible. And it might be worth adding that this text, Codex Alexandrinus, apparently had an appendix of apocryphal works. And First and Second Clement isn't in that. It's in with the rest of the text. It's in with other canonical works. So for these Christians, it seems it was part of the Bible, or at least important enough to be included along with the New Testament works. And to add a little supporting evidence for that, or at least to show how important this letter was for some communities, there's a report in Eusebius that a certain Dionysius circulated a letter that stated that First Clement was read within the Corinthian church in public worship for some time. 
It's also preserved in the 11th century Jerusalem Codex, which is a really fascinating manuscript that contains many of the works we now call the Apostolic Fathers. That is, a bunch of our earliest extra New Testament early Christian works. So the Didache, the Epistle of Barnabas, the Letters of Ignatius, and First and Second Clement. Uh, what can we say about who Clement was? Do we know anything about this guy, Jacob? Well, we can't say too much. It's important, first of all, to note that what we get from the letter itself is that the Roman church has written this letter as a collective letter. At no point does an individual identify him or herself. At no point does the author slip into the singular I. He always writes, we, the church in Rome, or we exhort you to do this or that. Uh, there is no evidence of who actually wrote the letter. But from a very early date, we have traditions about a Clement having written this epistle. Irenaeus of Lyon says that Clement, the author of this epistle, was the third bishop of Rome after Peter. And this is probably anachronistic. Probably we don't have the monopiscopacy, this one bishop presiding over Rome, an early pope, quite going on in the period of Clement. Uh, but Irenaeus remembers this figure as an important figure in the Roman church. And we also have evidence from Shepherd of Hermas in Vision uh, 2.4, for instance, that reads, Therefore you will write two little books, and you will send one to Clement and one to Grapta. Then Clement will send it to the cities abroad, because that is his job. So we also have reference in Shepherd of Hermas to a certain Clement that seems to have secretarial duties or duties related to the writing and transmission of letters. And that's led others to identify this Clement with the letter first Clement. But it is certain that Shepherd does not attribute the same weight or significance that Irenaeus does later. And while we have sort of forgotten this figure, this was a really well-known figure to early Christians. We have a series of pseudo-novelistic texts called the Pseudo-Clementines, the Pseudo-Clementine homilies and the Pseudo-Clementine recognitions, which are a series of stories about the adventures of this Clement, his interactions with Peter, his conversion, his encounters with Simon Magus. These are hugely important texts for the history of like early Jewish Christianity. They preserve within them second century documents that have Clement as their protagonist. And we have additional letters that are pseudepigraphically attributed, that are falsely attributed back to Clement, uh, the homily second Clement, which I've mentioned before, as well as like Clementine letters on virginity and things like that. Clement became this figure that if you wanted to say something authoritative or if you had an important text for you, um, Clement was a plausible person to say may have written this or may have advocated that viewpoint. What we can say about who Clement was from the letter itself is that the letter was probably written by a single individual and has written it to the church in Corinth with the consensus of the church in Rome. We can also say that he was probably a rather educated individual, though Harnack doesn't seem to think that he was educated deeply in the philosophical traditions of his day. Some have suggested that he was a freedman. Some have suggested that he has a Jewish origin or maybe even was a God-fearer. And this is based upon his constant reliance upon the Old Testament, specifically the Septuagint. He has cited it so often that scholars have suggested that about a 25% 
of the letter consists of quotations from the Greek Old Testament. Yeah, this text is particularly fascinating for the way the author uses stories, passages from the Hebrew Bible, alongside exempla from Greek mythology, alongside exempla from secular history, alongside exempla from early Christian history, appealing to the life and death of Peter and Paul, for instance. And these things are all sort of put together as authorities, as examples, as things that the congregation is, would presumably find persuasive. So whoever this is, there's someone with a wide breadth of knowledge of what would become the Christian scriptures, as well as someone knowledgeable in secular Greek and Roman history. So Jacob, we've talked about uh, where this letter comes from, our sources for this text. Uh, we've talked about who Clement was, and we've even talked about a little bit about what's in this letter. But what's this letter about? What's first Clement addressing? Yeah, so the church in Rome has heard about a conflict that's taken place in Corinth. We don't know how precisely they heard about it, but they've heard about it. A schism arose, and many or some of the bishops had been deposed and replaced. The church in Rome stepped in and exhorts the church to reinstate those deposed elders who'd done nothing wrong to justify their removal. Harnack argues that this fight could not have been about the institution of ecclesiastical offices in principle because the bishops that had been removed were only some of the num numerous bishops that were there in Corinth. They had been replaced by others, so it didn't seem as if the office itself was the problem, or else they would have abolished the office entirely and not simply put their favored bishops in place. Let me illustrate this with an excerpt from First Clement, chapter 44, reading here from Holmes's translation. Our apostles likewise knew through our Lord Jesus Christ that there would be strife over the bishop's office. For this reason, therefore, having received complete foreknowledge, they appointed the leaders mentioned earlier, and afterwards they gave the offices a permanent character. That is, if they should die, other approved men should succeed to their ministry. These, therefore, who were appointed by them or later on by other repeatable men with the consent of the whole church and who have ministered to the flock of Christ blamelessly and humbly and peaceably and unselfishly and for a long time have been well spoken of by all, these we consider to be unjustly removed from their ministry. For it will be no small sin for us if we depose from the bishop's office those who have been offered the gifts blamelessly and in holiness." Blessed are those presbyters who have gone on ahead, who took their departure at a mature and fruitful age, for they need no longer fear that someone may remove them from their established place. A little bit of sarcasm there from Clement. For we see that you have removed certain people, their good conduct notwithstanding, from the ministry that had been held in honor by them blamelessly. We see you have removed certain people, their conduct notwithstanding, from the ministry they held with honor. Some scholars have suggested that the issue in First Clement is doctrinal in nature. Harnack, however, argues that there's no mention at all of doctrinal or ethical problems within the church, and even recommends that the leaders of the conflict migrate to a different church. In chapter 54 of First Clement, he writes, Who therefore among you is noble or compassionate or filled with love? Let that one say, if I'm the cause of faction, strife, and schisms, I will depart. I will go wherever you wish and do whatever is commanded by the congregation. Only allow the flock of Christ to be at peace with the presbyters who have been appointed. 
So Clement doesn't seem to have a problem whatsoever with these schismatics or these rebels picking up, leaving Corinth, and going to a different church in a different city. The problem is, is that they have issues with the individuals or the groups within Corinth. Right, so the matter seems to be just merely schism in Corinth. There's no doctrinal elements, there's no charges of moral failing, it's just quarreling that has led leaders to be removed from their offices. That is specifically what Harnack concludes, and he doesn't go any deeper into the occasion of the letter. Not really. There is one suggestion in a footnote that it's perhaps the young who are frustrated with the older presbyters within the congregation, and maybe even a woman here or there, who have risen up and overthrown these bishops. But outside of that, he doesn't say much else. And scholarship has gone in numerous directions on this point. I believe Jeremiah Bailey, who has a dissertation on First Clement coming out soon, catalogs over 20 or more theories about the occasion of the letter that have been proposed since Harnack or have been proposed uh, for the book of First Clement in general. And some of those include, for instance, the rich against the poor. Baca specifically argues for this, or Kloppenberg believes that a patron attempted to steal control from existing members. Wellborn takes up on Harnack's suggestion and says that the young, with the help of a matron, for instance, has taken control from older leaders. Rothschild views First Clement as an engagement with a Marcionite controversy. She dates the letter much later. Jeffers sees it as a fictional letter to begin with, meant to secure the protection of the state by demonstrating that Christians are not a threat to the state. And Janelle Peters, recently in the Cambridge Companion to the Apostolic Fathers, has argued that the conflict is rooted in a shift from democratic leadership to lifelong priesthood. These are some of the suggestions that have been offered recently. The clearest information we get about the offenders is they're characterized by zealos and phthanos, which means something like zeal and envy. And of course, we can't take this as like an accurate representation of how these rival leaders would have understood themselves, but maybe it tells us something about the author of First Clement's impression of them. These are people who are zealous for leadership? They might be characterized as ambitious, thinking with the language of Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. Um, these are uh, people who are overreaching, perhaps, and thereby creating a schism in the church. So we've talked a little bit about the occasion of the letter, why it was written, but we haven't looked too much at Clement's solution to the problem. And his solution is that they are to look at the blood of Christ and to see how valuable it is, to look to see how dangerous zeal and envy are and what destructive forces they are that they are to leave these things aside and to look at the good deeds that God has done in creation, to look at the good deeds that God continues to do and model themselves after his behavior, and that they are to love one another. For the leaders of the rebellion, Clement advises them to pack up their bags and to leave Corinth and go wherever the leaders in Corinth recommend. If they do this, they will win glory in the name of Christ and in the name of the church. Just like 
the secular leaders who have exiled themselves for the benefit of the state are remembered and glorified in the future. It's interesting here to see the continuities and discontinuities between Paul's letters to Corinth and this letter from a different church leader to Corinth about 30 years later. Um, in fact, First Clement alludes back, draws attention to the similarities with the situation that Paul was addressing. You know, Paul knows of factions in the church that call themselves uh, by Apollos and things like that. Um, so there's definitely some some important commonalities here addressing some of some similar issues, although there's obviously sin problems going on that Paul has to draw attention to, specific moral failings in the Corinthian church. But there's also some really interesting discontinuities that we're going to talk about. How first Clement assumes a discourse of glory and concepts of the harmony of the state and things like that that aren't what you find in Paul. First Clement is drawing on an intellectual world, I think at least, that Paul has less access or interest in accessing when addressing his congregation in Corinth. So this is Harnack's final work, and he writes an essay on First Clement. What does Harnack have to say about First Clement? Can we say this work has anything like a clear thesis? No, it, it doesn't have a specific clear thesis. One of the things that's important to note is that the translation sort of hides the title, the true German title. We thought that that was necessary because it wasn't going to be clear to the English-speaking world what the book was really about if we maintain Harnack's original title. His original title was Einführung in die alte Kirchengeschichte. So that's the main title, and it's translated Introduction into Ancient Church History. But the entire book is about First Clement, and it leaves the reader thinking, how is this an introduction into early church history? But Harnack designed it specifically for that purpose. He believed that the entry point into early church history and its later developments into the Catholic Church could be found in First Clement. Without First Clement, we do not have the bridge between the New Testament, as he says, and the later developments that become the Catholic Church. First Clement functions as this bridge. And if you could say that his biggest purpose, not his thesis, but the biggest purpose for this work is to train his students and other students to drink deeply, to use the cliche, in First Clement, so that they could better understand the New Testament, and that they could better understand the later developments that will come in the next 200, 300 years. Right. Harnack thinks this work is an introduction to all of church history because Harnack believes that First Clement contains in noose or everything that is essential, that is core to Orthodox Christian doctrine. And I think in that we see Harnack, as we've talked about in our previous episodes, as a very German Lutheran Protestant reader of early Christian history. But nevertheless, Harnack's claim is that we have all the essentials of Christian doctrine in this letter about conflicts over polity in the Corinthian church. And it's not just that we have the essentials in terms of doctrine, because he's going to say that Clement, in terms of his doctrine, is not fully developed. He, he says that some of these things are in their inception in First Clement, but really what he sees in First Clement in terms of a number of the developments in the ch early church, 
For instance, we just cited 1 Clement 44, which talks about the succession of apostles. And although we have no fully formed doctrine of the apostolic succession, we do start to see in Clement's view the development towards that and the development towards monoepiscopacy and the papacy in Rome. And there are a number of other points at which he sees these doctrinal developments coming. That's a really good correction. And I actually like the metaphor used earlier that Clement for Harnack is a bridge between New Testament Christianity and church history. And then that way becomes an introduction to church history. Because there are places where Harnack will point out that, that Clement still holds on to how Paul viewed the world, but is starting to bridge over into how the early church fathers would read those same texts. I think Harnack sees Clement as this sort of like transition between New Testament and what he would think of as the rest of church history. So it's probably an overstatement to call this the core so much as it is. It shows all of the things that would be fundamental to church history sort of developing out of New Testament world. Absolutely. And we also see in Harnack's view that the way that Clement addresses certain issues will become uh, orthodoxy or will shape what orthodoxy will become. One example of this would be his usage of the Old Testament. Uh, the very fact that he draws these parallels in terms of examples or moral principles from the Old Testament and the very fact that it is as fundamental of an authoritative text for him will help, in Harnack's opinion, the church address Marcion when he comes on the scene years later. They will be able to react and say, no, this is our authoritative text. It has always been authorit authoritative for us, and we do not just lay it aside. So one of the themes that Harnack would have us attend to in First Clement is Clement's attitude towards the Jewish scriptures, the Christian Old Testament. To quote from Harnack, the Christianity of First Clement recognizes its complete and sufficient God-given foundation in the Old Testament and therefore is nothing other than the religion of this book. Any analysis of the religious content of the letter is wrong that does not put this proposition at the forefront. This Christianity simply identifies itself with the religion of the Old Testament. So, pretty obviously, First Clement thinks of the Old Testament as authoritative for Christian practice. Harnack will think that Clement uses the Old Testament in an unpauline way because Harnack is reading Paul and Christian theology of the Jewish scriptures in a very German, Lutheran, early 19th century way. Um, how does Harnack read, Jacob, First Clement's use of the Old Testament? Well, first off, he says that the Old Testament is the divine word of God. It's the final authority for the church. It doesn't matter who wrote specific books of the Old Testament. He can cite from those books without acknowledging the author, because the author is simply God. Whether it's Isaiah, whether it's from Genesis, it, it really does not matter. It is spoken out by the Spirit, and it is applicable to the church. He also says that the Old Testament was given by the prophets. He recognizes that the prophets received this word from God, and holy men had received it. But regardless of that fact, Clement believes that it is applicable to the elect of God, and in his view, that is the church. 
Harnack says that Clement's view of the Old Testament is that it is an ethical book of regulations and statutes, which reveals God's will for his people, as well as his love and forbearance for them. It is itself a book of grace and mercy and does not need to look forward to Christ for its sufficiency. Personally, I think Harnack's reading of Clement at this point is incorrect. In 1 Clement 7, verses 4 and following, Clement writes, We should gaze intently on the blood of Christ and realize how precious it is to his Father. For when it was poured out for our salvation, it brought the gracious gift of repentance to the entire world. Now, the way that Harnack reads this verse is that it brings repentance for the entire world from the point at which Christ died forward. So he sees this as a universalization of the ability to participate in the people of God. The way that I read this passage is that Christ's death retroactively and looking forward makes that possibility for repentance. Harnack calls attention to the fact that, you know, if putting this in conversation with its contemporaries, Clement isn't doing the kind of allegorical readings of the Jewish scriptures of the Greek Bible that we see in Barnabas, the epistle of Barnabas, or Hebrews, the canonical epistle of the Hebrews. Harnack sees this as more of a straightforward use of the Greek Bible, of the Greek Jewish scriptures, as moral instructions for Christians. That's absolutely right. He sees a one-to-one correspondence between the commands in the Old Testament and what is expected in the New Testament. Jacob and I might not see eye to eye on this, but it seems to me that Harnack refers to this as Judaization, that this sort of the Pauline gospel of simple, mere grace, um, he says, is there, and then Clement slips back into a sort of moralizing, works righteousness reading of Paul. And I think, of course, Harnack is totally misreading what Paul thinks of just justification being. I, don't, I think Paul himself sees faith as involving works. Um, but of course, this wasn't on Harnack's radar. Um, so Harnack sees in First Clement the picking up of Paul's gospel and then the slipping of that back into Jewish categories of works righteousness. That's absolutely right. And you see statements in First Clement which speak about justification by faith alone. And then you see other statements by First Clement that sound like James, where justification comes through works. And this is where Harnack sees Clement's maintaining the pure language of Paul, but actually not internalizing it in any sort of way and missing, in his opinion, what Paul is all about. He sees the examples of faith in works from Rahab and Lot and their hospitality as the means of justification in First Clement, and that that is radically unpauline. Whereas listeners of this podcast won't be surprised to learn that I think in this particular case, at least, First Clement is a better reader of Paul than Adolf von Harnack. But as a podcast that focuses on the history of New Testament scholarship, we can, of course, read Harnack as a product of his intellectual environment. So we've talked a lot about Harnack's understanding of First Clement's use of the Old Testament. What does he have to say about Christology? Overall, Harnack's opinion of Clement's Christology is that it is very broad, 
but not very deep. That is to say, Clement expresses many great and grand things about who Christ is, but he doesn't really develop those to any extent. He talks about Christ as mediator. He sees that Christ is pre-existent and even has claims to divinity within First Clement. He sees his words as authoritative for the church, though not in the form of the gospel. He sees Clement talk about Christ and his resurrection. All of these things are there, but he claims that Clement doesn't have any depth to them. He doesn't have the theological soul of Paul or any of the other authors that he draws from. Instead, he has these broad traditions that are swirling around him and about him, and he's adopted them for his own, but not made them his own. As Jacob has pointed out already, the Jewish scriptures Clement speaks of as, you know, simply the words of God, God speaking. I think it's not surprising that when we turn to look at the words of Jesus, we have simply the words of Jesus cited as an authority on par with the Jewish scriptures. There isn't any explicit reference to gospel texts here, and I don't know if that's really a meaningful silence. Uh, what we do have is the Jewish scriptures being attributed to God and the words of Jesus cited as an authority on par with the Jewish scriptures. And that's just the evidence we get from First Clement. What's interesting about that, of course, is what that tells us about you know, Clement's view of Jesus. And the author of First Clement, I think, pretty unambiguously describes the divinity of Christ. That's right. Some of the texts that Harnack points out that lend themselves to a belief in the divinity of Christ and his pre-existence are when he cites the words of our Lord and draws from passages from the Old Testament, for instance. Another passage would be 1 Clement 32.2, where he speaks of the Lord Jesus coming according to the flesh. That, in his mind, in Harnack's view, is a statement about the fact that he had a divine pre-existence before he takes the form of man. He also speaks of Christ as being the scepter of God and his majesty in 1 Clement 16.2. And Harnack understandably sees in 1 Clement some proto-Trinitarian language. 1 Clement 46.6, Have we not one God and one Christ and one spirit of grace that was shed upon us? So here we see God, Christ, and spirit put together. Not explicit Trinitarian language, but certainly we can see how this was read by later Christians as an affirmation and early affirmation of how they would come to understand uh, the Trinity. First, Clement writing to Corinth, you know, addressing the schism and enjoining to them submission and humility, raises the resurrection as a kind of threat of future judgment. And Harnack sees in First Clement's discussion of the resurrection and sort of series of defenses of the bodily resurrection, some doubt. Uh, Harnack sees Clement as a very shallow thinker um, who maybe has read broadly but doesn't think very deeply on things and sees in this discussion of resurrection a skepticism or a doubt towards bodily resurrection. That's exactly right. In a footnote, Harnack writes, Clement strongly felt the difficulty of belief in the resurrection and thus carefully underpinned it with a series of proofs. What I find really interesting about this is the fact that at the point in the letter where Clement really does take the time to develop a specific doctrine and to undergird it 
with a number of proofs in order to demonstrate its reality to his audience and make them convinced of it as well. Harnack casts judgment on Clement's own belief in that specific doctrine. Whereas in all the other places where he makes simple statements about Christology and about Christ, Clement calls into question his understanding of those theological themes, of those theological doctrines, of their significance. I find this to be an inconsistency in the way that Harnack reads First Clement. And I think personally, and this has not been fleshed out in any of the secondary literature, that this has something to do with his desire to find in First Clement a pure expression of moral religion. And this pure expression of moral religion coincides very much with the points at which he struggles with Christian dogma, points about the physical resurrection of Christ, points about the pre-existence and divinity of Christ. At these very points, Harnack sees in First Clement the very struggles that he has. So if I understand you rightly, you're suggesting that Harnack is reading into First Clement uh, his own skepticism and struggles with the resurrection, despite the fact that Clement himself, as I read the text, doesn't seem to have particular problems with understanding this. That's precisely right. Of course, defending the bodily resurrection is a topos in second century Christian literature. There is some obvious reasons that the idea that our bodies will be reconstituted at the end of time might need to be defended, as laid out in Justin and elsewhere. I think it's not a little surprising to see a defense of this in First Clement, and we don't need to, on that basis, read into Clement a sort of dubiousness towards the resurrection itself. That's exactly right. And Clement's use of the phoenix as an example is exactly tailored to that specific concern about the disintegration of the body and the reconstitution of it in a new form or in a similar form. Short list of passages that totally should have been in the New Testament. Let us observe the remarkable sign that is seen in the regions of the east, that is, in the vicinity of Arabia. There is a bird that is named the phoenix. This bird, the only one of its species, lives for 500 years. When the time of its dissolution and death arrives, it makes for itself a coffin-like nest of frankincense and myrrh and, and the other spices into which, its time being completed, it enters and dies. But as the flesh decays, a certain worm is born, which is nourished by the juices of the dead bird and eventually grows wings. Then, when it has grown strong, it takes up that coffin-like nest containing the bones of its parents and carrying them away. It makes its way from the country of Arabia to Egypt to the city of Heliopolis. There, in broad daylight, in the sight of all, it flies to the altar of the sun and deposits them there. And then it sets out on its return. The priests then examine the public records of the times, and they find that it has come to the end of the 500th year. So here, Clement has given us decisive proof that bodily resurrection is possible in the uh, well-known example of the phoenix. No doubt, we are persuaded. What's really interesting about this phoenix passage is the fact that in early Christian iconography, the phoenix itself becomes a symbol of Christian resurrection. One thing that's really notable in reading First Clement is the attitude towards the state. Uh, as Harnack reads Clement, Clement views secular authorities as a divine institution, as part of God's way of ordering the world. In First Clement 60, verse 4, we read, Give harmony and peace both to us and to those who inhabit the earth, 
just as you gave it to our ancestors when they called upon you in a holy way, in faith and truth. And allow us to be obedient to your all-powerful and all-virtuous name, and to those who rule and lead us here on earth. You have given them, O Master, the authority to rule through your magnificent and indescribable power, that we may both recognize the glory and honor you have given them, and subject ourselves to them, resisting nothing that conforms to your will. Give to them, O Lord, health, peace, harmony, and stability, so that without faltering they may administer the rule that you have given to them. For you, O Master, Heavenly King, forever give humans glory, honor, and authority over the creatures of the earth. O Lord, make their plan conform with what is good and acceptable before you, that when they administer with piety the authority you have given them, in peace and meekness they may attain your mercy. Harnack's reading of Clement is that the recognition of the law of the authorities and their political orders means much more than that of bowing under the criminal law of the state. It also means the recognition of civil law as God's order, as far as it does not commit sinful acts. With this, however, the church of God places itself beside the Holy Scripture and also on the ground of imperial culture as a divinely willed institution. This theme of secular authorities as a divine institution or Clement's attitude towards the secular authorities has been taken up a number of times within Clement's scholarship since Harnack. Jeffers, as I mentioned earlier, is one who thinks that this very passage is the reason why this letter is a fictional letter, that with this passage, Clement hopes that he can placate an angry Rome and or a concerned Rome and demonstrate to Rome that they pose no threat whatsoever. Malik, for instance, believes that the church is in danger of attracting the eye of Sauron or the eye of the state because of its schism and unrest. Schism and unrest is a major political theme uh, within the Roman imperial world. And anytime schisms pop up of any kind, the empire is very wary. They keep a very close eye in order to put it down, lest that unrest spread throughout the city. So he's saying that Clement is afraid that that's going to happen. And he doesn't go the way that Jeffers goes, although he's before Jeffers. Uh, instead, he says that Clement is writing and warning the Corinthian church that they need to put this rebellion down, they need to submit to the deposed elders and to submit quick, and that they also need to submit to the state in hopes that the state will not intervene with force. In an SBL presentation, I argued that Clement's depiction of God and his depiction of the officials of the state is a subtle reminder that God is the one who grants all authority, under the earth, on earth, and above earth. Although the emperor certainly derives his authority from God, God is able to alter these circumstances if he sees fit. And I think that that's what we find in that concluding prayer right there at the end when he says that it's our hope that he administers with piety and attains to divine mercy. There's this reminder that the emperor is really the one who receives his authority from God. And we see this theme as well in Dio Chrysostom's kingship oration 
uh, the first one, verses 43 through 46, and really throughout his kingship orations, that the kings receive their power from Zeus, and they can be just as easily displaced and removed if they are found unworthy of that uh, position. And I think that Clement is doing something similar here. Yeah, he's saying that Christians need to submit to the state. He is saying that in reality, the state is a divinely willed institution, like uh, Harnack says. I don't think that he is granting the state the sort of authority that later interpreters think that he is. I think he's saying, much like Christian attitude towards the state has always been, and uh, Jewish attitude toward the state has always been, yeah, God raises up nations and he brings them down when they are found to be unjust. And he's not saying too much more than that. We submit to them, but God is the one who has authority and the state is ultimately subject to him. So this has kind of been a tour, a partial tour of the letter of First Clement through the things that Adolf von Harnack thought might be important to discuss. We haven't covered all of Harnack's essay, of course, and we didn't even touch on the several essays that Jacob collected in the back of this book, which are very interesting. Uh, for instance, a discussion of some interesting variant readings in the Latin translation of Clement that seem to support the Roman papacy, things like that. But I hope this has introduced our audience to this letter, to the first Clement, this really important text for the study of early Christianity, uh, and has added a little bit more breadth to our understanding of Adolf von Harnack as a theologian, as a church historian. I would only add that First Clement is an excellent text. It's a very interesting text, and I hope that you will spend some time familiarizing yourself with it. Jacob's doing some really interesting projects. I hope we can have him on again uh, sometime in the future. Um, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you so much for giving us this English translation of an important work of scholarship on the history of Christianity. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on the show.